0: I want you to think about something this morning. Have you ever been excluded from something? Ever been? Matthew has been. (laughs) You ever been left out, right? Maybe you weren't picked for the team at recess, you know? You were the last one, and everybody else got picked, and you were left out. Or maybe you had an older brother or older sister that just didn't want you tagging along with them and their friends and you were the one that got left out. Anybody ever experienced something like that? Okay, most of us have at some time or another. We don't usually like to be excluded from things, do we? We want to be let in. We want to be a part of it. Sometimes though, we exclude ourselves from things, don't we? Right? We look at the the speed limit sign on the highway and we think, well, that applies to everybody else, but I've got a good reason to go the speed I'm going to drive, right? Or we look at something around the church, something that really needs to be taken care of, and we think to ourselves, somebody should take care of that. And we don't ever have any thought about doing it ourselves. We just say, well, that's, that's somebody should do something about it. But we exclude ourselves from the conversation. So maybe what we should say is that we don't like to be excluded from things we want to do. But we'll gladly exclude ourselves from things we don't want to do, right? I mean, if we're going to be honest. That's what we're like as human beings, isn't it? Well, this morning I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and open it with me to Psalm 148. Yes, Psalm 148. That means there's only two more psalms left to go after this one. And since there's three weeks left in the year, I don't know what we're going to do with that extra week. You know, we'll figure it out. I'm kidding. We've got a plan for it. <laughs> psalm 148. In this psalm is a song that has instructions. Um, that was something else I heard somebody on the radio talking about this week. And they were they weren't shocked, but they were making the comment that it seems that people aren't very good at following instructions. Anybody, anybody ever know that? Notice that before? Um, you know, we've got all these people that can't seem to figure out how to follow instructions. Uh, you know, and I don't want to get political, but you know, a lot of stuff going on with with uh, absentee ballots, and people just can't seem to figure out how to follow the instructions. Right? A lot of things like that. For some reason, people struggle to follow instructions. Well, we have a song with instructions here. And these instructions are written in such a way that no one is left out and no one can exclude themselves. We have what we, what we might call here an all-inclusive hymn of praise. And this Psalm 148 is at the center of of what is known as the final and I've mentioned this the last couple of weeks. The final Hallel is really the conclusion to the entire Psalter. It's the last five psalms. I think there's good reason for us to think that these psalms were, were written uh, during the time when Israel returned from exile and began to rebuild the Jerusalem and rebuild their land. And if, if they weren't written at that time, then it's likely that they were discovered at that time, and then they were incorporated into the book of Psalms and placed in this position at that time. And so I think that's very likely uh, how that came to be. And so they're placed here at a time in Israel's history when all of the Old Testament history largely has already occurred. And so they're kind of in a sense, they're the capstone. They're the conclusion to the end of the Psalter. But, but as we have noted going through the Psalter really over these last five years, the the, the books or the Psalms in the Psalter follow the course of Israel's history in many ways. And we see the rise of David and his, uh, his rise to become king and then the Davidic dynasty uh, following on in Solomon. And then from there, we see the decline of the... Of the monarchy and how it ends up going to the point of captivity, and we see all of that. And then we have in this last book, book five. Really, we have in in a lot of ways a, a lot of, of imagery and, and and ideas that that suggest the return from exile and the restoration as they're becoming back to the land. And so we kind of come to the end here, and it's like it's like we get to this last part, and you kind of wonder what is it that the Israelites needed. To know or needed, maybe not to know, but needed to remember something they already knew. But think about this. These are, uh, these are if, if this is the time, we're talking about Israelites who have come back to the land and begun to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, a city that was completely demolished, burned to the ground. And they've begun to reestablish their society and reestablish the worship of Yahweh in the land. And all of this is going on under the watchful eye of the Persian government. Because while the Israelites are doing this and experiencing some measure of liberty, some measure of freedom to establish their society, to reestablish the worship of the Lord, at the same time, these Israelites are not independent. They're not self-governing. They are under the authority of a foreign government. Now, we know from our perspective, looking back through history, we know that when Israel came back into the land, they were under the rule of the Persians. The Persians ended up being conquered by the Greeks. And so, for a brief period of time, the the, the Israelites were under the rule of the Greeks, and then the Greeks ended up becoming conquered by the Romans. And there was a little window in there where, the, where the, the, the Jews kind of asserted some some force and were able to uh, get some of their own independence for a very brief period of time. But then the Romans came in and really when you, when you look at it, you realize that from the time of the exile when Israel was carried away captive, and the time of this return, all the way up until the virtually up until the present day, the the land of Israel was under... Gentile dominion. And the people of Israel were under the rule and authority of other nations, Gentile nations, nations that did not know the Lord and did not honor the Lord. So for roughly two and a half millennia, these people were going to be under that authority. So what did they need to remember? What did they need to know? Well, I would contend they needed to remember that the Lord was still in control. They needed to remember that He was still the Lord, the Master, the King, the Sovereign who rules over all. And they needed to remember that His plan and His purpose was still being worked out in the world. And this psalm, I think, serves that purpose. Look at Psalm 148 with me. Notice again, this psalm starts praise the lord praise yahweh praise yahweh from the heavens praise him in all praise him in the heights praise him all his angels praise him all his hosts praise him sun and moon praise him all you stars of light praise him you heavens of heavens and you waters above the heavens let them praise the name of yahweh for he commanded and they were created he also established them forever and ever, he made a decree which shall not pass away. Praise Yahweh from the earth, you great sea creatures in all the depths, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for His name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven, and He has exalted the horn of His people. The praise of all His saints, of the children of Israel, a people near to Him. Praise Yahweh. Let's pray and ask God's guidance and help as we come to the Scriptures this morning. Father, I thank You for this wonderful hymn of praise. This psalm that reminds us of Your great glory, Your majesty, Your awesome power and wonder, but also of Your your great love and Your your salvation that You provide and You alone. Father, I pray that You would help us as we come to Your Word, not just to, to hear what it says, but Father, help us to receive it as it is the Word of Truth. And I pray that You would use me. Father, I I need to be able to minister, but I can't do this. I don't have the ability. I need You to use me as Your instrument, to to work through me and use my words and my voice so that Your will is done today. And I pray that You would glorify Yourself in the proclamation of Your Word. And that You would, would drive home to our hearts the truth, apply it to our lives, that we might know and understand and do uh, what you would have us to do this morning in response to your word. And I give you the praise and the thanks for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Psalm 148 begins, like all of the Psalms in the final hellel. it begins with that Hebrew word, hallelujah, translated praise the Lord here in the New King James. And it's interesting because that word hallelujah, I've mentioned this before, but it comes from the Hebrew uh, the Hebrew verb halel, which means to praise, and a shortened form of the name Yahweh, which is the name of God. So it means praise Yahweh, praise Yah. And that word or that verb halel is used then throughout this psalm. Every time you see the word praise in this psalm, it's the same word in Hebrew. Now, sometimes we read the psalms, and there's different words for praise that are used synonymously, not in this psalm. In this psalm, beginning to end, it's the same word that's used. And so at least 10 times here, we have this word, this expression repeated. If you, if you don't take the first and last, that form, hallelujah. But the verb itself 10 times occurs in this psalm. We are told to praise God. And the first stanza, which is really verses 1 through 6, what we have is God's praise throughout the heavens. And especially for the kids who are following, I didn't get the notes up here on the screen, but uh, as you're filling out your notes, God's praise throughout the heavens is the first point there. Now, the, the thing is, we see this. He says, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord from the heavens. But when he says heavens, of course, we understand that word heaven can mean different things, can't it? And so we have to ask, well, what does he mean by the heavens here? Is he talking about the sky above us? Because Sometimes the, the Bible uses the word heavens, and we talk about you know, birds that fly through the heavens. Right? Well, that's the sky. Or is he talking about the, the solar system and outer space? You know, The heavens that are out there where the sun, the moon, and the stars exist. Or is he talking about heaven as in the place where God lives? So what is, what is in view here? Well, it, it, as we already read these verses, you can see in verses 2 and 3 and 4, that all three of those things are in view, aren't they? I mean, he includes all sorts of things that ought to praise the Lord. Angels. Hey, okay, Well, that suggests that he's talking about the heavenly realm where God lives. Because the angels are there with him. But then he talks about the sun, the moon, and the stars. Again, that's, that's space and the world outside of earth. But then he talks about the, uh, the, the, the highest heaven and the waters above the heavens. And the implication here seems to be that all of the, all of the things, all of the layers, if you will, above us, everything that is above us here is where he's, what he's talking about. And so I think it's safe to conclude that he is saying that in all of these places, in all of the heavenly realm, the sky, space, the spiritual domain, all of it, praise is due. To the Lord. Everywhere praise is due to the Lord. Now, the the, the terms in verses two and three are pretty simple, pretty straightforward. We understand that he's really describing all of the expanse of the heavens and the space, and he's describing the angels and all that exists there. But then verse four is kind of interesting because there's a couple of phrases there that are that are fascinating and worth maybe considering for a moment. And the first one there is the heaven of heavens. He talks there in verse 4, praise him, you heavens of heavens. And that's, really a, that's actually a very literal rendering of that phrase. Some Bible versions will translate that the highest heavens. Um, it's a phrase very similar to the phrase the holy of holies. Anybody know what the holy of holies refers to? Anybody want to just share real quick? Anybody remember what the holy of holies refers to? Okay, the Holy of Holies is that the the, the innermost room in in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, right? It was the place where nobody could just walk in. Only the high priest could go there once a year with very special instructions. And why? Because the Holy of Holies was the place where God dwelt, right? It was the inner sanctum, if you will. And so the, the holy of holies, it's like the, the most holy place. That's the idea. The the heavens of heavens, then is like the heavenest of the heavenly places. Okay. It's the highest, it's the, the, the most exalted place. And this phrase is used several times throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you some examples. For instance, Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 14. Moses says this: indeed, heaven and the highest heavens, that's the phrase, okay? the heavens or the heaven of heavens. Moses says, indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to Yahweh your God and also the earth with all that is in it. So the highest, the heavens and the heaven of heavens belongs to God. It is his. He owns it. And then later on, Solomon, and uh, oh, I didn't write the reference down here. I think it's 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon was dedicating the temple in Jerusalem after it had been built, and he offers up a prayer. Of dedication, And in his prayer, here's what Solomon says, and it's very fascinating. He says in... Uh, in uh, No, that's the wrong verse. I was going back to Deuteronomy. He says, but, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, much less this temple which I have built. So the heaven of heavens uh, seems to include not just the created realm of earth, sky, Space, but, but even the place where God dwells, right? The outermost reaches, the furthest reaches of everything that God has made. And Solomon says even that can't contain God, right? A lot of interesting truths we could we could chase there if we wanted to chase some rabbits. But, uh, but the heaven of heavens, he's saying here, the, the furthest expanse, the widest, the broadest... It doesn't matter how you want to apply this word. All of it, in all of it, in every place there, God deserves praise. Now, the other half of verse 4 is also interesting because he says, he speaks here of the waters above the heavens. And uh, that is a really interesting uh, phrase. And what what might come to your mind when when you read this, the waters above the heavens, is Genesis 1 and verse 7, where Moses writes this, thus... God made the firmament and divided the waters that were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. Moses there in in the description of the creation week seems to describe God creating the atmosphere um, around the earth and such that there was water beneath the heavens, which is the water on the earth, and there's water above the heavens. And there's a dispute about what that means because some some people say, well, that's talking about the clouds, the water in the atmosphere, and some people say, no, it's actually water outside of the atmosphere. And so there's different theories about that. And, and uh, it, it, it's not really all that important here. Um, it is possible that that's what the psalmist is referring to. The language is not identical um, because the word heavens does not appear there in Genesis 1 in references. It's not exactly the same phrase. Um, but whatever he's describing here. Uh, again, wherever this water happens to be, maybe it's water in the atmosphere. Or maybe it's, it's, and some people have suggested, the psalmist is actually thinking about water out there in space, you know? Ice planets and comets and things like that. You know, places where there'd be water elsewhere. I don't know. Regardless, what we do know and what is very clear is that, again, wherever you find water, (laughs) wherever it is, even above the heavens, even out there, guess what? That's a place where God needs to be worshiped. That's where a place God deserves praise. He ought to be praised in all of these places, anywhere that we could think of, anywhere we could go. He ought to be praised. Now, it's interesting because you think about the history of mankind, and one of the things that we know is true is that over the centuries, uh, many people have worshipped angels, right? Many people have worshipped angels. And other people, and, and throughout history, Uh, People, and they still do this today, they tend to look at the stars and they use the stars as a way to kind of discover their destiny, right? Um, And of course, we still, like I said, we still have people doing some of this today. But you know, Psalm 148 shows us that this is really foolish. Why is it foolish to worship angels? Psalm 148 says so. Why is it foolish? Well, because angels are creatures that were made by God's hand. That's what Psalm 148 tells us, right? In verse 5. Let them praise, let them, that's the angels along with everything else, let them praise the Lord in the name of the Lord. Why? For He commanded and they were created. Right? The angels were created by God. And they are supposed to worship Him. So it's foolish for you and I to worship them. Because they aren't to be worshipped, they are worshipers, They worship God. And why not uh, worship or study the stars? Why not read your horoscope and try to predict how your day or your year is going to go? By the way, I'm sure the horoscope industry saw 2020 coming a mile away, right? And I'm sure they, they warned everybody, right? If only we'd listened. No, not really. Why is it foolish to do that? Well, Psalm 148 tells us. Because the starry host, the sun, the moon, the stars, that God, God commanded and they were created. They, they are created by God, And guess what? They're supposed to praise Him too. Did you know that? The stars are supposed to praise God. Now, I I puzzled this a little bit this week. How is it that things that do not speak are supposed to praise the Lord? Right? Because the sun, the moon, the stars, they don't speak. Now, the the angels can sing, the angels can speak. We know that. Scripture tells us about that. But The other things that are mentioned here, they can't speak or sing. And yet the psalmist says praise the Lord. They ought to praise Him. Well, I think we'll see, actually, this is the second half of the psalm, the same problem comes up because he talks about a lot of other inanimate objects, right? Things like like snow and wind and and, uh, mountains and hills and all sorts of things. And he he talks about these things, and he says that they ought to praise the Lord too. Well, how do the mountains praise the Lord? Well, I I suppose one way you could could answer that is you could say, well, didn't Jesus say that if we would keep silent, the rocks would cry out? So that's it. It's just this is, they're just there as backup in case we don't do our job. Yeah, avalanches, right? (laughs) I don't think that's the goal. In fact, what I think he's saying here, I think the idea of praise goes beyond just spoken word. I think the idea of praise here in the psalm has to do not just with spoken word, but it also has to do with fulfilling their purpose. You see, when we we talked about this in in Sunday school, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. They do it without a word. I think that's that's my opinion, by the way, of Psalm 19, verse 3, if you were in Sunday school. I think it's saying there's not a word spoken, and yet it is very clearly understood, the glory of God. How is it that the Son can declare the glory of God? Well, Psalm 19 says it. It's by running His course every day. It's by, by, by riding his chariot across the sky, or running his race is the way, way David says it. He's like a strong man, ready to run his race in the morning. And he runs it all the way to the end. How does it declare the glory of God? By doing what it has been called to do. That's how the sun declares God's glory. How do the stars declare the glory of God? By doing what they have been called by God to do. They fulfill their purpose, and they express and declare and praise the name of the Lord. I think that's what the psalmist is saying. I don't think he's necessarily saying you know, that this praise is always spoken. These inanimate objects can praise the Lord by doing what he's called them to do. The angels do so as well. And we do have some glimpses of the angels sometimes actually singing and speaking words of praise to God. So that is clearly one of the things the angels have been called to do. But there's other things they do as well, and we see that. Regardless, in each case here, I think what we have is we have instances where each of these things does what it has been called to do, and by that, praises the Lord. Now, the psalmist gives a reason. So as very, very typical, this psalm is very, very straightforward. Verses 1 through 4, he lists off all the things that are supposed to praise the Lord. Verses 5 and 6, he says why. Then he's going to do the same thing in the next stanza. List off a bunch of things that should praise the Lord, and then tell why. And that's pretty much the whole psalm. Okay? So why is it that all of the things in the heavens should praise the Lord? Right? Well, there's two simple reasons. Verse 5, it says that Yahweh commanded and they were created. And so we reiterate this. We've talked about this the last several weeks. We talk about this often. How is it that God created the world and everything that was in it? How did he do it? Read it in Genesis 1. What does it say? And God said, right? What did God say? Let there be light. Let there be. At every step along the way of creation, God spoke words. That's all he did. God didn't have to lift a finger, as if He had human fingers. God didn't have to lift a finger. All He did was speak. And when He spoke, these things came to be. He spoke, and everything that we see when we look up into the sky came into existence because God spoke. That's it. That's the reason that He ought to be praised. You see, the heavens did not develop over billions of years didn't. I'm sorry to tell all of the people who have believed that the universe is 13.4 billion years old um, and the earth is 4.3 billion years old and whatever else. Okay. I'm sorry to tell them. The Bible says that's not how it happened. God spoke and these things came to be in obedience to His command. That is exactly how it happened. That's what Genesis records for us, and Psalm 148 uh, confirms that, if you will. God spoke, and out of nothing, all of the heavens and all the things in the heavens came to be completely dependent on God and God alone. Now, verse 6 gives us the second reason, if you will, for why he ought to be praised, because it says here that he established them forever and ever and how did he establish the heavens how did he establish the sun moon and stars the things that are in the skies the things that have how did he establish even the angelic realm how did he establish these things he made a decree that is he passed a law with the word of his mouth he declared something and it was so and it says he made a decree that shall not pass away I think this verse is referring to what we would call the natural laws. Right? We talk about the laws of nature, the law of gravity, and the, 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 the different laws that make up the world, Right? the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of motion, and all of these different things. And we have discovered a number of laws, things that appear to be true all the time in the physical world and in every place, as far as we can tell. When we have discovered all of these laws, well, where do the laws come from? Psalm 148, verse 6 tells us God made a decree that it would be so, and it was so, and it is so, continually, forever and ever. This is, why, this is why the laws of nature do not change. This is why the sun comes up in the east and sets in the west, and that doesn't change. This is why summer leads into fall. Leads into winter, leads into spring, leads into summer, leads into fall. And this continues on and on perpetually. Why? Because God established a decree. He declared it to be so, and it is so. This is why we can discover. I was just, just read about this this week. Um, the, the discovery of the planet Pluto, which now I know is not a planet anymore because poor Pluto. But, um, but, anyways, I was reading about that this week. And, you know, Pluto, interestingly enough, you may not know this, but Pluto was discovered because astronomers were looking at the, the movement of the outer planets of the system and said, "Now something's not right here. They're not moving exactly the way that our predictions and models say they should move. There's something is affecting them. And so they began to search and thought, well, they did some calculations and said, you know what, we, I bet you there's a planet out there we haven't seen yet. And that planet is causing these planets to move differently than we expect. And then it took a number of years. They calculated and they looked where they calculated and they found a planet. How can we do that? How can we sit down and crunch the numbers and figure all that stuff out? How can we be sure that it's going to work the way that we predict? It's not an accident. Psalm 148 and verse 6. He established the heavens forever and ever. He made a decree that shall not pass away. So we know that these things are going to be true tomorrow. Why? Because God says so. That's it. That's the only reason that we have any confidence in our observations in science and in the world and in our predictions about what tomorrow is going to look like. The only reason we know that is God says so. That's really it. You realize that? I mean, that little little kids' song that we like to sing. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How do I know what I know? I'm getting a little bit far afield here, but the truth is the only reason I know what I know is God says so. At the end of the day, that's it. There is no other foundation upon which any knowledge can rest. And Psalm 148 speaks here of the natural world, and it tells us how it came to be, Not just how it came into existence, but it tells us how and why the natural world continues to operate the way that it does. And it's only because of God. Guess what? He ought to be praised. You ought to praise His name. Because every bit of technology, every bit of of machinery, every bit of of skill and, and usage of this world that we have developed rests on the fact that God declared these things to be so and they continue at His word. That's why we're able to live in this world as we do. All because God declared it to be so, and it was so. So praise the Lord. Now, that's the first stanza. He's really focusing on the heavens. But the second stanza, verses, well, it's 7-14, but I'm going to say, let's say 7-12. Because we're going to say the last two verses, because there's a little special wrinkle here, okay? But the second stanza, you notice a shift, don't you? You can see it very clearly, verse 7. Praise the Lord where? From the earth. Here's the shift, right? What we have in the second stanza is God's praise in the earth. God's praise in the earth. We had God's praise throughout the heavens. Now we have God's praise in the earth. Notice what he says here. Praise the Lord from the earth. And then he goes on to list all of these different things that are supposed to praise the Lord. All the things that ought to be praising the Lord from the earth. The sea creatures, That's some versions translate that sea monsters. It's, a, it, it's the word that refers to the big, the great sea creatures, the biggest, the strongest, the most fearsome things that we don't even know about. Uh, who knows what lives in the ocean, right? I mean, there's so many things we haven't even discovered. With all of our vaunted knowledge, there's so much mystery, even in the depths of the ocean. And, and, and they say, listen, all of those creatures that live down there in the darkness... All those creatures that live under the water in those inhospitable places—guess what? They ought to be praising the Lord. And then it even says, "All the depths." That's, that refers to the, the, the churning depths of the ocean itself. That the, the oceans themselves ought to praise the Lord. And then notice it, it, it shifts in verse uh, in, in verse eight to speak here of meteorolo- meteorological things, right? Fire and hail. I think fire, by the way, here um, just because the context, um, I think fire probably refers to lightning. Right? Fire and hail, snow and clouds. I think he's talking about, about storms. And so the fire here, I think, is probably a reference to lightning. Um, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Right, We've talked about that before. We talked about that last week, didn't we? Jesus proving his power by speaking to the wind and the waves. Peace, be still, he says. And everything was instantly calm. What to me I love about that story in Mark 4, when, that, when we read about Jesus calming the sea, is the disciples' reaction to that. They are terrified. When Jesus does that, they get scared because they go, whoa, who is this guy? What he can do? Wow. And, and, and they realize they're not in the presence of just some prophet. It's not just some great teacher, not just some, uh, some magician who can conjure up great tricks. No, they're in the presence of somebody who has real power. Because he speaks, and the wind and the waves listen. <laughs> and what does the psalmist say here? Stormy winds fulfill his word. Again, by the way, to the Jewish mind, right? The, those, those Jewish disciples in the boat, do you think they knew Psalm 148? Do you think they had read this over and over and over and over and over for years and years and years as they learned and meditated on the Scriptures that they had been taught since they were children? you think they knew this? I guarantee you they did. And when Jesus got up and said, Peace, be still, and the wind and waves listened, this might have been one of the verses that came to their mind and thought, well, only Yahweh can do that. He's the one that the wind fulfills His word. Well, what does that say about Jesus? See, The deity of Christ on display there. Very, very powerful. He speaks then of the mountains and the hills in verse 9. Mountains and hills... Then he speaks of the fruit trees and the cedars. The fruit trees here, or fruitful trees here, probably refers to cultivated trees, right? And the cedars uh, would be an example of a wild tree that's not cultivated. The cedars of Lebanon were renowned for their great size. They could grow to over 130 feet in height, and they could live for more than 1,000 years, There's still some of them there today. Massive trees that have lived for for millennia. And he says all of these trees, whether they're cultivated to be fruitful by man or whether they're wild just growing out there in the wilderness, all of them, in verse 10, he begins to speak more of of the the living creatures here, beasts and all cattle. Um, The word cattle there is probably more of a term for just uh, domesticated animals. So it's not just cows and cattle. It's, it's, it's broader than that. But the beasts are certainly the wild animals. So you have the, the wild animals and the domesticated animals, right? And then you have the creeping things. That's things that, that move along the ground. And then you have the flying fowl, the birds in the air. Now, do you notice how increasingly here, these things are coming in pairs, He's, he's pairing this and that, this and that, this and that together. Uh, these, are, uh, these are a series of expressions. That, the term here is merism. I've mentioned this before to you. But a merism is a kind of expression where you refer to the whole of something by referring to kind of the polar opposite parts. So, for instance, if you, you might say something like, well, we were at it day and night. Well, what you mean is we were at it constantly but day and night represent both ends of the spectrum and everything in between. Or you might say, well, we looked high and low. Well, you didn't just look up there and down there. You looked everywhere. But the high and low is, is trying to use an expression. That's what he's doing here. So he's, he's, he's kind of saying, well, you know, everything from the fruit trees and the fruitful trees that have been cultivated by man to the wild cedars of Lebanon and everything in between, all of the plant, all the plant kingdom, and, and the, the beasts out in the field, the wild animals as well as the domesticated animals. All of those creatures. And the, the things that creep along the ground and things that fly in the air and everything in between. And then he continues. Notice he continues doing the same thing, but he does it in verse 11, now referring to people. Because finally we get to actually talking about people. And he says, kings of the earth and all peoples. Princes and all judges of the earth. So here he's 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 spanning all of the different realms of human authority, people who have power and people who are in positions of power. In every nation and across all ethnicities, all of this he's 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 saying all of these people ought to praise the Lord. But it's not just people in government positions of power, because then he he says the young men and the maidens, um, and I think the emphasis in that line in verse twelve is really on their sex. It's Men and women, the young men and the maidens, referring to uh, their, their, their sex, their gender. And so what he's saying is everyone from both sexes. And again, if you know the Bible, you realize there's only two sexes, contrary to what many people uh, think today. So he says, everybody is included here, male and female. That, that covers everybody. Oh, and old men and children, which... Again, old men here is more of a generic term for the elderly. He's talking here about every age across the spectrum as well, from old to young, and everything in between. The point is, what he's saying here, is that no one gets left out, and no one can choose to opt out. Every single person, right? Whatever your age, whatever your sex, whatever your, your, your station in life, every single person who lives on this globe, ought to lift their voices in praise to the Lord. This is a job for the whole human race, along with everything else that exists anywhere on the earth, anywhere in the heavens, everywhere you go, everything ought to praise the Lord. This is all-inclusive praise. Now, again, we are naturally brought to the question of, okay, why? Right? What's the reason given? In verse 13 he tells us, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and the heaven. His name alone is exalted. That word alone is so important. Why? Because there is no one like Him. There is no one like the God who has revealed Himself to us. In the natural world, the God who has revealed Himself to us in His Word, the God who's revealed Himself to us by His Son, there is no one like Him. He is absolutely unique. There is no other God who has His name, His authority, His highly exalted person. You see, this God Yahweh is not a part of the creation. He's not a part of the creation. As for instance the hindus would have us believe that he is simply just a part of the created order he is not right he is exalted above it he sits above it he's not a part of it not only that not only that but he is not some man who has achieved some higher level of divinity and is somehow raised above all of the rest of humankind. That's what the Mormon church, Mormon church, no, that's what the Mormons teach. Now the psalmist says he is exalted. And that word exalted here uh, means that he is uh, unapproachable and inaccessible. Right? He's so high, you could not get to him. You could not reach him. You could not approach him. There is no way to get to him. He's so high above everything. His glory, he says, the last part of verse 13, his glory is above the earth and heaven. And that tells us that he rules over the whole created order and everything in it. He is the great king. He is the sovereign Lord, and His majesty cannot be matched by anyone or anything. Now, it's interesting, because I said that that this stanza kind of goes through verse 12, verse 13, and there's a little bit of a shift here, maybe an extra wrinkle here. Because verse 14 offers another reason to praise God. And it gives us here a demonstration of his power and his authority. But I think you could also say that this last part of the psalm, verses 13 and 14, really add another dimension to the praise of the Lord. And it's this. We have in the first stanza, we have God's praise in in the heavens, right? Throughout the heavens. Then we have God's praise in the earth. And now in the very closing verses, what we have is God's praise among his people cuz here we have a special focus that comes into view he has exalted the horn of his people what does that mean exalted the horn of his people well the phrase exalted the horn is a phrase that mean it refers to the idea of strength and power and for god to exalt the horn of his people suggests Military might, military victory, the, the ability to conquer their foes. This, this phrase is used a few else, a few places elsewhere in scripture. For instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 1, you have Hannah, godly lady in the Old Testament, and she has prayed and, and prayed that she would have a son because she had not been able to have children. And God blessed her with a son. Of course, his name is Samuel, for whom we've named the book there. And she receives this son, Samuel, and she prays and gives a a song of praise back to the Lord. And here's what she says in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. My heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. What she's saying is, God has lifted me up and given me victory. Against my enemies. That's what she means when she says, My horn is exalted in the Lord. Now, later on, if you read through the rest of that chapter, interestingly enough, she actually offers a prediction that God will exalt the horn of Messiah to come. And that is then echoed again in places like Psalm 89. In Psalm 89, we read this, My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. It's referring to Messiah. And in my name, his horn will be exalted. The Lord gives success and victory to his people. And so the sense here, there is this kind of a generic sense in which this expression, the the horn of his people being exalted, it could just refer to um, the Israelites kind of receiving fresh strength this is what one commentator said about that that this is a psalm 148 is is they're just praising god because he's given his people fresh strength and courage right they've returned to the land they're rebuilding and he's given them strength and courage to do that but you got to remember as we said these people who are returning back to the land they are returning under the control of a gentile power they're not independent they're not gaining victory over their enemies they're They're very much um, under subjugation and rule of others. And so while it may be that there is some sense in which the psalmist is saying, hey, God has really given us strength. He has really helped us. There still was an expectation of a greater deliverance yet to come. And I think that Psalm 148 is highlighting that. What's interesting is when we look in the New Testament, we look at the story of the birth of John the Baptist. I had Dan read from Luke 1 this morning. In Luke 1, we find Zacharias, who was the father of John. And you remember an angel came and predicted that Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, was going to get pregnant and they were going to have a son. And the angel said, you're going to name him John. And that confused Zacharias because John was not a family name. There was nobody in their family named John, and so that was... That was very unusual. You named people within the family. You kept family. You honored family members with names. I mean, that was not, you did not break from that. Okay, this was a serious tradition. And when he he struggled to believe that, the angel struck him dumb and said, You're not going to be able to speak. And so he was not able to speak until his son was born. And the day that John was born, the people, the, the, the other family members are there, they're gonna say, Well, what are the, what are they gonna name him? And Zecharias, you know, he writes out call him John and they say wait that's not a family name what are you doing he says no his name is John and then he's able to speak again and then what's interesting is he he praises and he he gives glory to the Lord and Dan read for us what Zecharias said here's what he said there in In uh, I believe it's verse 69 of Luke chapter 1. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. John, Zacharias' son, was the forerunner of Christ. And Zacharias knew that. That's clear from what Dan read this morning for us. He recognized that His Son was going to be the forerunner, the one who would lead the way for the Messiah who was coming. The prediction that God would finally raise up the horn of salvation, that He would exalt His people, the horn of His people, just as Psalm 148 here speaks. This is the reason that His people ought to praise Him. According to verse 14 in Psalm 148, Because this is what God does. He delivers His people. He saves His people. And I think Psalm 148 is written, yes, recognizing that God has already delivered, that God has done great things for them, but I think it's written in in anticipation of greater deliverance yet to come. And again, I think Zechariah picks up on that. That's the hope that the Israelites had in that first century when Jesus was born. They were still clinging to that hope. That God who was going to raise up a horn of salvation to the house of David, Messiah, who is going to come. Now this is what's fascinating. Because as we said in verse 13, back in Psalm 148, God is described here as being exalted, unapproachable, high, uh, unreachable by men. How then, in verse 14 are the children of Israel described in this way, they are a people near to Him. If God is so high and exalted above the heavens that He rules over all, how is it that this people Israel could be said to be near Him? Well, it's not because they somehow achieved some level of greatness by which they could, could, could claw their way up to Him. Now, The only way is if He came down from His exalted position to be near them. If God would condescend to come down and be near His people. And that is exactly what the Scripture records that God has done. He did it in the Old Testament in the tabernacle, in the temple, when He came down into the Holy of Holies to be with and meet with His people on earth. But even that was just a foretaste of what was to come when God would come down and become a man. When He would take on human flesh in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that's what it means, Matthew chapter 1, when it says that He will be called Emmanuel, God with us, God high and exalted, who nevertheless has come down to be with us. And so even here, I think in the closing verse of Psalm 148, I think there's an anticipation of the gospel. An anticipation of Christ coming down to be with us. So that the children of Israel could be a people near to the Lord. So that you and I now, centuries later, could Be a people near to the Lord, because He has come near to us. Are you one of God's people today? Not an Israelite by birth, but a child of God by faith. The same faith that saved Abraham and all of the Old Testament saints. Have you trusted in Christ to be your Savior? Have you recognized that Christ is your Lord and your King, your Master, the one to whom you owe allegiance, the one to whom you owe praise? God has raised up the horn of His people. Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and rose again so that you might have life in Him. It's ironic because Jesus said in the Gospel of John, He said that as the Son of Man, He would have to be lifted up. That idea of being lifted up, carries kind of a double meaning, doesn't it? On one hand, He was to be exalted. Lifted up. Raised up. As in the horn of salvation, to be raised up and exalted for His people. But of course, what did He mean by that? He was to be raised up on a cross. To be lifted up and hung from a cross until He died. And of course, we understand now, we look back and we see how that truth fits together, right? That it was absolutely through Jesus' bloody and brutal death on the cross that He was highly exalted. That He conquered. That He became the victor. That He achieved salvation through His death. Jesus absolutely was exalted, lifted up. And by it became that horn of salvation. Psalm 148 reminds us that no one is excluded from the call to worship the Lord. You have been called to praise the Lord. The only real question today is, are you going to do it? But actually, there's a—I should say, there's a little bit of a different wrinkle to that question. It's not really, are you going to do it? It's when are you going to do it? Because in the book of Philippians chapter 2, Paul makes this startling statement that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It will happen. So you will praise Him. You will declare Him to be Lord. You will honor Him and worship Him. The only real question is, when? I would invite you to do it today. If you've never done that, if you've never confessed Jesus as your Lord, if you've never trusted in Him, then today I invite you to bow your knee to Him to to recognize that He has died for you to pay for your sins. He is raised again from the dead and He lives as your King. And you should acknowledge Him as such. I invite you to do that today. And if you've trusted in Christ You know, you may not feel like worshiping God. You may not feel like praising God. Some days are hard. Sometimes life is hard. And sometimes we're in a situation where we don't feel like praising the Lord. But guess what? Psalm 148 doesn't give us an out. We don't get to take a day off and say, well, I'm, I don't feel like praising God today. I got a lot on my plate. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise the Lord from the earth. Praise the Lord, you, His people. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this very important reminder from Your Word. We know this to be true. Those of us who have trusted in Christ as our Savior, we know that You are glorious. You are worthy of all the praise and honor that we could give, and so much more. Nothing we say or do will ever come close to expressing the praise you deserve. I don't even think we can understand all of it, let alone speak it. We know that. And yet it's easy for us to forget. It's easy for us to get caught up in the the ups and downs of life, in the busyness and in the trials and the difficulties, and sometimes to get caught up in our emotions so that we don't feel as though we want to praise you. I'm thankful for Your Word that brings us back to these simple truths that You are worthy of praise. That everything You do is worthy of praise, and we ought to praise Your name. That it's not just us, but that everything You have created and everything You have made will praise Your name. And we have a role, we have a part to take in that choir. And Father, I pray You would help us to gladly and willfully take up the song of praise today. I ask that you would stir the hearts of those who may be listening who don't know you as Savior, who have never trusted in Christ. They realize that they are failing to fulfill the purpose for which they've been created. They are rebelling against it. And they stand in judgment even now. And I pray that they would bow their knee before you and they would humbly confess that you are Lord. They would cry out to you for mercy and forgiveness because you've sent your Son to pay for their sins. And they would be saved and join in the song of praise, fulfilling our purpose for which we all have been made. Father, we thank you. You are great and glorious in majesty. Help us to praise your name today in Jesus' name. Amen.